sexy zaddies let's talk red light do you have wrinkles yes i do sore muscles yes i do psoriasis eczema scoliosis migraines sleep problems arthritis acne scar tissue wound healing needs well red light therapy could be very very helpful to you i've been using red light for many years now and i recently got myself a handy mini red light from bond charge it's about the size of my palm you may have seen i put it on my stories i um I put it on my face, I put it on my chest, and I put it on my balls. I had lots of questions from a lot of people the other day when I put a story up of me with this thing in my pants. Anyway, it's amazing for testosterone and hormone health if you're interested, but it's amazing for a lot of things. 10 to 20 minutes each day, it contains both near-infrared and red light. It's designed in Australia. It's sleek, beautiful, lightweight design. They come in a range of sizes. There's the Mini, which I've got. There's a slightly bigger one than that, which is the Demi. And then there's the Max and the Super Max, which is designed to hit the whole body at once. Bond Charge, ship worldwide in rapid time. Easy returns and exchanges, 12 months warranty on all red light devices. But Bond Charge don't just do red light therapy. They do low blue light bulbs, perfect for nighttime, you know, by your bed type lamps, blue light blocking glasses, EMF protection products, infrared sauna blankets. So if you're looking into those, instead of getting a big sauna, which costs like $5,000, these ones are much more cost effective. And, and, and blackout sleep masks, super handy stuff. Go to bondcharge.com forward slash zaddy and use coupon code zaddy to save 15% off. That's bondcharge, B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E dot com slash zaddy to save 15%. XOXO, zaddy. Joining us today on the Zaddy Zone, what a pleasure. Dr. Will Cole, could you just tell me how you're going? How are you? Man, I... I'm excited that we're talking today. I, I this is a long time coming in my book. So <laughs> this is day May. Yeah. I'm on Zaddy Zone. Yeah, baby. baby, the Zaddy Zone. Tell tell us who you are. Give us a, a little introduction to Dr. Will Cole. Um, I am a functional medicine doctor. So my my day job is get to get super nerdy with labs and data and figure out why people are struggling with different health issues. We deal a lot with different autoimmune problems, hormonal problems digestive issues, combination of those factors and give people tools to reclaim their health. So we started one of the first telehealth centers over 13 years ago. So my day job is that, is running the telehealth center here. And from that passion of for my patients and functional medicine, I write books about this stuff, written a few books and have a podcast called The Art of Being Well. And, you know, I have two golden doodles, two kids, beautiful wife, Long walks on the beach. I'm an Enneagram five, left-handed. <laughs> what's wait? What's that? What's an Enneagram five? Oh man, dude, we need to. I'm going to send you after this a little a, an Enneagram Institute quiz. It's a part of a personality of. I don't want to say personality. It's kind of a personality test, but more of how you see the world. What motivates right. you? And it stems from like your childhood messages you receive as you know as a kid and. Enneagram 5 is a researcher, so it works well for my job, mm-hmm. and 
I, 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 I don't want to type you in front of everybody, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait and see what the test says. Okay. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I mean, so what happens? Like, uh, uh, let's just say I come to you uh, through your telehealth lab and I uh, don't have any particular issues, but I just want to work with you. Maybe I'm feeling some digestive uh, distress sometimes, a couple days a week. What would be the start off? How, how would I, would I, would I poo in some Tupperware and send it to you or? Yeah. Pretty much. It looks more like a fry dish. So you can, instead of French fries, you would poop in the French fry dish and send it out to the lab. But you can rinse it afterwards if you wanted to use it again and recycle. But <laughs> uh, I wouldn't recommend that. The uh, So how it starts is really with a health history. It's really the unsexy, not that pooping in a fry dish is that sexy, but it's even unsexier than that is just a health history, a good, solid, comprehensive health history of figuring out, okay, what labs are even re- relevant to you? So you know, not everybody needs every lab under the sun. There's so many great labs out there, but not all of them are, you know, so much superfluous to you. So I want to look at this, the areas that are the most relevant from a clinical standpoint. And yeah, it starts with that. And we talk like we're talking right now virtually. And then we'll run, we'll ship out the appropriate labs for you, coordinate them. If it's like a a blood test, a local lab that's in your city and some tests you do at home, like the poo test or like a urine saliva test or something like that, a urine test. Um, So yeah, that's where it starts. And then we'll we'll build a protocol based off of that lab data. And then we Mm. clinically monitor people and coach them and guide them and build them food protocols, build them natural medicine protocols, build them biohacking protocols and coordinate with local specialists if we need to, to really give them the thorough support that they need. Yeah. I want to talk about something that you often talk about, which is kind of the the holistic idea that like how healthy you are definitely affects your mental health. Obviously your your brain is part of your body. And so that there is obviously there's this gut brain axis and I've heard it said that young men today have an average testosterone level roughly equal to that of a 67-year-old man in the year 2000. But you said something similar to that, uh, something I'd never heard. You said the average young adult today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Could you expand on that? Yeah. And that where I got that, that reference is a, not even a new study. That was a study that's maybe 10, 15 years old. So I can only imagine what actually the research says today when you look at the growth of mental health issues like anxiety and depression, other brain health issues today that are even worse than when that study came out. Mm-hmm. Look, we're, we're living in a time where there's a mass, we're, we're coming to the point of unsustainability on so many different levels. And we are, as humans, just microcosms of a large, larger issue from a, what researchers refer to as an evolutionary mismatch, an epigenetic genetic mismatch, where we are living in a brave new world in, a many, way, in many ways. And it's, there's a confluence of different factors from the foods we're eating or the foods we're not eating, our exposure to environmental toxins, our relationships with technology. It is a combination of things, but it is a uh, we're now facing this in the form of, you know, it's uh, mental health issues, autoimmune problems, metabolic issues. These are largely lifestyle driven, uh, epigenetic driven. 
Um, and they're in, in the genetic variants that are associated with these issues are being triggered like never before in human history because of this epigenetic genetic mismatch. So it's uh, it's startling. And then when I post a statistic like that, people will say to me in the comment section, I'll see from time to time, you can almost expect what people are going to say, right? And they'll say, well, it's because there's better diagnostics. And that's why. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's part of it, right? We understand things better. We're talking about things more. The internet like, get, uh, is raising conversations that never happened before. That is certainly part of it. Awareness and the diagnostics is a part of that. But nobody that's looking at the statistics of mental health issues, autoimmune issues, metabolic issues is going to say it's solely due to better diagnostics. Hmm. So yeah, that's what we're facing, sadly, as a society. Yeah, I'd say that we have to look at the overstimulation of our brains that have never been stimulated in this way before. Uh, humans have never had computers like for, for our entire human history. We haven't had them up until like you know 30 years ago. And now we have computers, not only computers, we have computers in our hands. We have computers on our wrists. We have this constant stimulation, which I don't think humans were ever supposed to have. Uh, as far as I'm concerned. So there's a pretty clear and obvious signal there that we are overstimulated and our brains are overstimulated and our nervous systems are probably reacting to that. Yeah, absolutely. We we are um, without a doubt living in this dysregulated state because of that chasm between genetics and epigenetics. And yeah, it's definitely taking our, our nervous system and, and if you want to open it up even more, the neuroimmunoendocrine system, the nervous system, the immune system in the form of chronic inflammation, and it, therefore our endocrine system, our hormones are taking a hit. You mentioned testosterone levels being part of that. Um, people are having massive insulin signaling issues in the form of insulin resistance mm -hmm. and uh, estrogen and progesterone for people as well. So it's a it's a very much uh, a, a problem and we see it today. It's kind of it's easier to, it, it's it, it would be hard to ignore even the the, the person that somehow I, I don't understand these people that want to justify and downplay these things that are going on um, because they're very real and they're impacting people's quality of life yeah so what do you tell clients who you can tell that stress is a part of their inflammation and um that you can tell like uh perhaps overactive, they're heavily anxious. What do you tell clients like that? First, I'd love to hear what you tell them to do lifestyle-wise. Do you tell them to exercise, meditate? Um, and then what do you tell them to, to eat in order to calm brains? Is there a way to eat to calm your anxiety? Yeah. It starts with food, right? It really starts with food. Not that that's the only facet to this. It's yes. not. It's multifactorial. But it starts with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, it's really going to be hard to have a great mood and be supporting a great mood when you're eating foods that don't love the human body back. It's going to be an uphill battle at best. So we can provide our body the raw materials that it needs to have proper hormonal signaling, to have proper blood sugar balance, to have proper gut brain axis innervation. Uh, so I, I, what I would say is the average human would benefit, and most of your listeners are going to know, the, the more inflammatory things that are problematic to most humans. And there are better for you versions to all of these things. I mean, it's not black and white, but number one would be added sugar. People have to look at the at the grams of added sugar they're consuming in a day. There's a lot of bioindividuality with that. Um, some people can tolerate it more than others. What type of sugar matters, how much fiber is 
part of that conversation matters of how that that sugar is metabolized, but people should look at the grams of added sugar they're having, specifically the processed refined sugar. We know that's going to impact mood through the gut-brain axis largely and its impact on blood sugar. And uh, number two would be gluten-containing grains. There are better versions of gluten out there. Mm -hmm. And it's a nuanced conversation of, is it the gluten or is it what we've done to it? Is it the hybridization? Is it the genetic modification of some grains, the spraying of glyphosate? Uh, or is it the not properly preparing that food, right? Is it, is it not sourdough? Is it not fermented? Is it not soaked and sprouted? It's, it's all of those things, I think, depending on who you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. But it, we're, we're feasting on a food that was used for famine. It's stored well during times of famine, and now we're over-consuming it, and we've done a lot to it as well. And so having less of that is going to be good for most humans and the impact that it's having on their blood sugar and inflammation from an intestinal permeability gut health standpoint, mm. which influences the brain in many ways. And then uh, industrial seed oils, I think, need to be looked at for many people, things like canola oil, vegetable oil, soybean oil, which you know. But, you know, I think, is it the oil itself or is it the overconsumption of processed packaged foods that their ratios of omegas 3, 6, and 9 are just off? And mm -hmm. I think the, that's probably true for most people is that it's just the overconsumption of these high omega-6 oils and not enough consumption of these long chain omega-3 fatty acids. And then last would be dairy. Uh, I think that there are better for you versions, better for you versions of dairy, like mm -hmm. A2 dairy, more of, you know, we're decreasing that epigenetic genetic mismatch by having these more original OG dairy proteins in the form of A2, and certainly the fermented dairies like kefirs and yogurts and cheeses and things like that. But yeah. even the best versions of dairy can still be problematic for some people. Uh, so what I call the inflammatory core four would be those four things. Yeah. Plus one would be alcohol, which I saw you post recently today about alcohol. I would add that as people, that's not an actual food, even though probably some people treat it like, <laughs> like one, but it, it's <laughs> It's problematic for our mental health as well. Yeah, totally. I really like what you said about the seed oils, that maybe it's not the actual oil, but the fact that you always overconsume it. You don't get fries and eat two. Never happens. You eat the whole bag of fries, and those are things that are cooked in really hot, you know, seed oils, really cheap industrialized seed oils. And so maybe you're right. Maybe it's not the oil. Maybe a little bit wouldn't be bad for you. It's the fact that whenever you do eat them, you eat a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that's part of it, certainly. And we know these oils, beyond just a human health standpoint and the overconsumption of them, can be promoting a pro-inflammatory state because of that ratio, those polyunsaturated fatty acid ratios of 3, 6, and 9 are off. But we know these oils are not great from an environmental standpoint, too. And what's bad for the planet is ultimately bad for us as well, which that's a bigger conversation, you know, when it comes to the mono ag of corn and soy and yeah. rapeseed and things like that. Yeah. Canola is rapeseed, isn't it? Is that right? It is. Yeah. There's yeah. no canola plant. Yes. No cola, yeah. But I can see why they changed the name. Rapeseed, not yeah. a good look. Not a good, not great from a PR standpoint. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like if I was a, a rapeseed advertiser, I'd be get raped. You know, that would be my, <laughs> sorry, probably inappropriate, but funny to think about that they had to change it to canola in order to make it yeah, marketable. I, I think it came from Canada. It's like the origin of like Canada oil. That's right. Canola oil. Great PR. But yeah, mm. I mean, just, I mean, who can't get behind a good old 
Canadian anything. <laughs> Canadians are so nice. It's way better than rape. Yeah, they apologize for doing nothing, the Canadians. God bless them. Tell me a little bit about A2, about what the difference is between general dairy, the da- general dairy that'll be the cheapest in your dairy aisle, and A2, and how that is different. So the majority of dairy that you get in the store today that you're you know the milk that people are buying consuming is predominantly beta a1 casein mm-hmm. which is relative to the human consumption of dairy is a relatively new phenomenon that the majority of human history humans would have consumed this beta a2 casein and this happened because of the crossbreeding of cows largely um so there are certain breeds uh, of cows, certain types of cows that still produce these uh, beta A2 caseins. Certain cows uh, in Europe, New Zealand, certain cows in uh, Africa, India still produce these or this original primordial or ancestral, I guess you could say, uh, subtype of casein, mm. which is what researchers are looking at is in, in, the, in the problem. Is it the dairy itself, or is it that we are eating this food that our our DNA, the microbiome that's digesting this as well, is it just a mismatch where it's more inflammatory, it's more irritating because we did not co-evolve with this subtype of casein, which is an interesting concept. So that's why, yeah. in part, what researchers are really saying, why people do not have the same inflammatory response to these A2 caseins. Which is another reason why the fermentation of dairy, even with the A1, is less problematic because you're breaking down some of that A1 casein that's problematic with kefirs, yogurts, cheeses, things like that. Yeah, it almost sounds to me like uh, across those, you know, those inflammatory foods that you just mentioned, when they are, you know, sugar, for instance, when it's encased in fruit, doable. When it's refined and processed, really rough on the body a1 which is not really what we've evolved to be able to digest is is not as digestible as a2 which is how we evolved it's kind of like new foods are rough on the digestion old foods tend to be ancestral foods tend to be better for us absolutely yeah that's well said succinctly said and you know the microbiome we co-evolved with it and it kind of makes sense when you look at it through the lens of an ancestral health and what's good for the microbiome is good for our health and I think of, you know, the 90s cartoon, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you think of Krang, the villain with the brain inside of the robot. That's kind of us. We're that robot and our microbiome is that brain. And it reg- it regulates a lot of things. And what's bad for that microbiome is bad for us. Yeah, let's talk a bit about that. Let's talk a bit about how exactly, you know, you're just talking about those inflammatory markers in the diet or inflammatory foods, how they do affect the microbiome and how that microbiome then affects our brain. I'd love to know about how that works. Yeah. So depending on the study that you look at, I mean, some numbers are lower, some numbers are higher, but it's upwards of 100 trillion bacteria in our gut. And we have a few trillion, 10, 30 trillion, something something like that, a lower number of, of human cells. We are vastly more bacteria than human as humans. And we're sort of a sophisticated host for this microbiome, this microbiome metropolis, this gut garden that's influencing our mood, our hormones, our immune system, lots of different things in the body. So it's 75% of the immune system. When you're dealing with inflammation, which is a product of the immune system, there's a lot of gut-centric components to people's inflammatory problems. And we can quantify this on labs. 
And uh, we also know that 95% of serotonin, our happy neurotransmitter, is made in the gut. 50% of dopamine is made in the gut. These things that are produced in the gut, these neurotransmitters that are made in the gut and stored in the gut don't pass through the blood-brain barrier. The mechanism of action seems to be at this point, the understanding of it is in this in the research, is it works upon GI motility and the vagus nerve, which is the long longest cranial nerve in the body. It's responsible for our parasympathetic resting, digesting, gut-brain axis communication, this hormone balance state as well. Mm. So when people talk about the gut being the second brain, that's really what they're referring to is the the gut microbiome and the gastrointestinal system's influence on our brain, this crosstalk between the microbiome and the vagus nerve into the brain. So there's a lot of researchers looking at certain colonies of bacteria within the microbiome that are associated with things like anxiety and depression and other uh, brain health issues, uh, even autism spectrum disorders or researchers looking at the microbiome's implication there as well, um, both from a microbiome-specific standpoint, but also this inflammatory component that I mentioned earlier. There's a field of research referred to as the cytokine model of cognitive function, and cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's researchers looking at how does how does inflammation impact how our brain works? How does inflammation impact mental health? So uh, the sig- if there is signaling issues from a neurotransmitter standpoint, if there's different parts of the brain that are firing uh, out of proportion, that is largely driven by inflammation. There are inflammatory components to these conversations. So there are multiple reasons that researchers are looking at the gut's influence on our brain and on our mood that we need to explore. And in, 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 mental, in the West, we'll oftentimes, like you mentioned, separate mental health from physical health. It's important for people to realize that we, we should not be relegating mental health as some sort of abstract thing where we, it's this quote unquote chemical imbalance that, that nobody measures. Yeah. No one's actually measuring this. And if there is a chemical imbalance, which is flimsy science at best for many people, what's causing the, if you're going to take that model, what's causing the chemical imbalance. And oftentimes it's these inflammatory components that our researchers are exploring. Yeah. And as well as that mental, mental health, you were just mentioning as far as serotonin, which is produced in the gut dopamine, 50%, you said, like those things directly affect your depression, anxiety, et cetera. So we can't, we can't just say that this is a brain thing. We have to know that it's a gut thing. We have to know that they're connected, but just, just tell me just so I'm clear, serotonin and dopamine you were mentioning, don't go through the gut brain axis. They go through the vagus nerve and that's how they affect us. Is that correct? They're indirectly influencing the brain. So the, the brain is, has its own, production of neurotransmitters. Got it. But the gut, the second brain, the researchers refer to the gut as the second brain because of this, the uh, sheer amount of the bodily production of neurotransmitters is predominantly made in the second brain, in the gut. And and every year, every year, there's more greater understanding of these implications. And I have no doubt another five, 10 years, even five to 10 months from now, there's going to be better understanding of these mechanisms. But at this point, how the gut's really influencing the brain, in part when you're talking about neurotransmitters, is its movement of the gut, the innervation of the gut, and its stimulation of the vagus nerve, 
which is responsible for this crosstalk, this bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut. Mm. And it's responsible for that parasympathetic aspect. So when people talk about a dysregulated nervous system, quote unquote, that's implicated in things like anxiety and depression and hypervigilance and these other brain health issues, it's largely what we're talking about is an overactive sympathetic response, this fight or flight stressed state, and an underactive parasympathetic, which is that resting digesting state, i.e. the gut. Uh, and that's really the vagus nerve. So the, the, the physical thing that's going on here in part is a, what researchers call a poor vagal tone or a weak vagal tone, mm. which is vagus nerve is weak. It's hypoactive and it's, a lot of gut feelings, a lot of my latest book is really meant to how do we strengthen the vagus nerve? How do we tone that that regulating of the gut brain? How do we tone that that parasympathetic response, which is really what, what when you're someone's talking about, I need a regulated nervous system or I'm uh, I want to have a regulated nervous system. That's what has to happen. Uh, and you really can't have that conversation without talking about gut health. Yeah, cool. So let me see if I understand this. The vagus nerve decides whether you're in a parasympathetic or sympathetic system. And the parasympathetic is really when you rest and digest, and sympathetic is is fight or flight. And sometimes when you're at home and you have nothing to do and you're not there's nothing really going on, uh, you're in a fight or flight. And you can't really understand why that is. Sometimes I sit down to eat and I'm like, I am not ready to digest this. I am not ready to eat. I am actually like stressed. And if I eat this, I'm not sure if it's going to, I'm not sure what it'll do. Um, am I on the right track here with this vagus nerve yeah. thing that that is what it does? Sympathetic, parasympathetic? Absolutely. So it's kind of a seesaw, right? And I've seen you know different books and academic you know, researchers kind of show it, depict it that way, as far as that sympathetic overactive, it's like that seesaw is, is up mm. and the parasympathetic is weakened. So a regulated nervous system, they're both important. There's nothing wrong with the sympathetic and the parasympathetic's good. It's that they both have to be active. They yes. both have to be regulated um, and modulated in a way that you can respond no matter what you need. There's a time for the sympathetic nervous system to be doing its job, but we don't always want to be in that low grade sense of threat. you know. And many people are in varying degrees. It exists on a spectrum, but many people... You look at the statistics of mental health issues and autoimmune problems and metabolic issues, that a dysregulated nervous system is implicated in the vast majority of people today. The best thing you can do to eat a healthier diet in order to live a better life is to prioritize protein. Protein helps you gain and keep lean muscle mass. And the best thing about protein is that of all the macronutrients, meaning carbs, fat, and protein, protein is the most satiating of all of them. AKA, it keeps you fuller for longer. So when I snack, I always try and keep it high in protein. And one of the staples in this house to help with this is Paleo Valley Beef Sticks. They are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and 6 grams of protein per stick. And of course, they're delicious. Chap chows down on them like crazy. So they're great for kids and adults. All the beef is sourced from small domestic farms in the U.S., the sticks are also fermented, so they're naturally high in probiotics, which are great for the gut. And grass-fed beef is higher in omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins and minerals, glutathione, CLA, bioavailable protein. They're also keto-friendly, and again, a great protein-rich snack to grab on the go. Very, very convenient. Head over to paleovalley.com forward slash zaddy to get 15% off your first order.
That's paleovalley.com forward slash zaddy to get 15% off your first order. XOXO, zaddy. Yeah, cool. Tell me about a lot of people experience digestive distress. A lot of people have sore tummies all the time, particularly if you've seen on TikTok, there's a there's a trend or, or across social media that all hot women have sore tummies, <laughs> which is true of my, my wife, by the way. She's super hot. And when I first met her, she had, had a sore tummy after every meal. And how can we, addressing this vagal nerve thing, how can we, when we come to eat, perhaps be thinking of how we can best digest our food. I understand that when you are stressed, you have more trouble digesting your food. Is this true? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Because the, in part because of that nervous system shift, right? There, you're less in that resting, digesting state. So the body is not really in the mode of digesting food appropriately. You can, it's just not going to be as optimal. And as you're not going to digest and absorb food as optimally as you'd like. And we aren't just what we eat. We are what we absorb. And many people, when you're talking about nutrient deficiencies, yes, it's part of it is the soil microbiome health and the soil in which our food is grown. Part of it is the consumption of nutrient dense foods regardless. Uh, But it's also, there's a vast amount of digestive issues where we're not absorbing foods appropriately. There's a so many people that have digestive problems and they normalize it, right? It's that they, it's normal is different than optimal or normal is different than common. And just because something's your everyday doesn't mean you should settle for it. And normal, as far as bowel movements are concerned, people should look at the bathroom, look at the toilet. Next time you go, normal is one to three snakes a day on the Bristol chart. Many people are not doing that. It's like every two, three days, or it's always loose, or it's always really a strain to go to the bathroom. That is a check engine light that your body's giving you that something's not right there. I heard, we, I think we have a, we have probably lots of mutual friends, but Max Lugaver is a friend of mine, and I think you know Max as well. Yeah, he's right? a friend of mine and too, we, yeah. We were talking on Instagram about that TikTok trend of that uh, hot girls, and it irritated so many people when we were just talking about the TikTok trend. They're like, well, why, why just hot girls? Or why are you, why are you guys talking about hot girls? We didn't make the trend. We were just talking about, obviously people are on social media going through this, which I think is a really good thing that people are normalizing, talking about things that are oftentimes stigmatized, especially amongst women. So it's, and they don't have to settle for it. These are things that I want people to get resources for, mm-hmm. to have agency over their health. Because many people, it is, there's a lot of shame and stigma and embarrassment around it where they just go and they cope because these chronic health issues of all different sorts, not just digestive problems, people can go to work oftentimes. They can go to work, they can live their life, and it's not a good quality existence, but they can get through the day. And it's and these are largely overcomable, healable, reversible, supportable things. Hmm. But you have to know what you're dealing with to do something about it. And you ultimately have to talk and you know reach out to get help sometimes. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, you, you mentioned there's a, there's a, there can be an issue with the soil so that your the uptake of your food isn't, your food isn't getting enough nutrients from the soil. And then sometimes you're not eating a nutrient dense enough diet in order to be able to make available to your body the nutrients that it needs. And then sometimes you're not digesting it properly and actually absorbing the nutrients. And so how can we, this is what I do when I I try and eat 
in a relaxed state and I try not to be in my phone and try and be with my food. What do you recommend? Am I on the right track? Get off my phone, try and breathe and relax when I eat? That would be great. Yeah. Eating more mindfully, sitting down, practicing present moment awareness. I love the way you've worded that, getting off your phone and pay attention to your food. I think that's whenever possible, uh, a good idea. And I don't want people to feel like, well, I always have to do that or become militant about it or obsessed about it. Do the best you can. And I think if we start making just movements in that direction, it's going to be great. And you don't, it's not all or nothing. And I think the more people practice and be live their life around mealtime supportive of that parasympathetic, it's going to behoove them. So yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. Obviously, going back to those inflammatory core four things, like eating foods, less of that, those things, uh, and how that can impact the gut microbiome, because the good foods that do love humans back will be a lot less, the body will be a lot less stressed because you've removed those stressors. So it can get the most out of the foods that do love humans back for the most part. And there's a lot of bioindividuality with that statement. I'm, I realize that there's mm. a lot of nuance and context around that. But I, uh, I, I think that as people have digestive problems, and for all those hot people out there that have digestive problems or non-hot people that have <laughs> digestive problems, uh, I really would say focusing on more cooked f- vegetables and cooked foods in general and less raw vegetables and foods is going to be beneficial from a therapeutic intervention standpoint for a time. Not that they always have to eat cooked foods, but it's nothing. This is nothing new. This has been used in traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine for thousands of years. And now this is just something that we also recognize in functional medicine that to be supportive of gastrointestinal health for somebody that has IBS, people that have SIBO, people that have, you know, chronic like reactive digestive symptoms being almost per- on a proverbial level of pre-digesting the foods, uh, not like a mother bird and chewing the food and spitting it back out. You could try that too. But by cooking the soups down, it takes some st- stress off of the body. Yep. So instead of working so hard on digesting foods, having soups and stews, I even have some patients puree the vegetables down to um, be more digestible. If you have a salad, steam the salad. These are tools you can do to be almost it's it's like a proverbial siesta for your gut you can work on repairing and have less stress on digesting these foods and i think soups and stews are a great conduit to sort of be a cast in a way a proverbial cast for a broken i don't use the word broken fracture dysregulated gastrointestinal system yeah so a dysregulated uh digestive system that eats raw vegetables what is it about raw vegetables that can be so disruptive a lot of cellulose, a lot of fiber, a lot of plant proteins that can be a lot to, to handle. Yeah. And it's stressing an already stressed out system. It's not necessarily those foods' fault. It's that there's a lot of other variables that we were talking about this conversation. It's the foods that don't love people back. It's chronic stress. It is our constant stuck in that fight or flight stress state because of how we're living life in a very unmatched way with how we've evolved, uh, that is we're not able to digest basic foods. And um, I think the overconsumption of them too, sometimes people, it's the epitomization 
of healthy food is a big salad and all these raw greens, mm. which you're just going zero to a hundred for someone that their gut's not in a great place to begin with. And you're making them consume over consume this, this food that requires a lot of work. And then you, in this example, you'll hear people tell, tell, I hear this a lot. People will tell me, I feel better when I'm eating the donut or, I, or the, the pizza or the cereal over a salad. And they think like, Oh, I, I feel worse when I eat healthy. <laughs> and it's, that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. It's that these foods are just so much to digest. The solution isn't just to have box cereal donuts. It's to repair your guts. So you can eat foods that are nutrient dense, but also love you back. Yeah. I love that idea of like taking a, let's just say you buy a salad at a store, those ready-made salads you can take. And if you were to put it in a pan over a medium to low heat with a bit of water or some olive oil, you could steam that that salad down just for about five minutes, push it around with a fork or a spoon and take it out. And it, you're saying that that would be more digestible for people who have disrupted uh, digestive systems? Yeah. Yep. And, and absolutely. And then over time, and not everybody has to be a vigilant, as vigilant as others, right? It, it, right. It, if you're not having extreme digestive problems, maybe you don't have to do that much. But the predominance, it's always a pie chart of how much cooked versus raw foods. And the more extreme your digestive symptoms, the more cooked you should go. And even being mindful of what you're cooking. I mean, there's a place for, for a time for people to have SIBO and other food reactions to go lower FODMAP, which are these fermentable sugars that are in lots of healthy foods otherwise mm. like onions and garlic and cruciferous vegetables and lots of you know vegetables like this they're not inherently bad it's not these foods fault but it's even healthy foods what works for one person may not be right for the next person and then over time you can segue out of that and lean into you know more raw and the pie chart can shift and evolve over time um, but yeah that's that's a good starting point and then if you need to take supplementation support as well that could be helpful different digestive enzymes um, different herbal supporters, different uh, amino acids can be helpful to break down these foods appropriately. Yeah, cool. So you mentioned that your your office often tells people to biohack in ways. Uh, certain clients, you'll get them to biohack. What do you mean by that? Like, what are we talking about here? So that, like, that's a phrase, right? Biohacking. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it's, I don't think of it as biohacking, but that's what would be considered the umbrella of it when you're talking about infrared saunas, cold therapy, these are tools when you're talking about a dysregulated nervous system or people that have these inflammatory problems, those are tools that we use quite a bit clinically, um, even before biohacking was a concept. We deal a lot with people that have environmental toxins, biotoxin issues like mold toxicity, for example, right. and their nervous system is stuck in that hypervigilant, anxious, fatigued state. They have trouble with their sleep-wake cycle, their circadian rhythm. And these tools are wonderful. From an infrared sauna standpoint, it's great to support detox pathways in that way. If they don't have access to an infrared sauna, we do Epsom salt baths, or we just have them move their body and sweat that way. The average human being just isn't sweating as much as they should be to support detox in that way. Uh, And beyond just a detox standpoint, it's great for mitochondrial health. It's great for supporting our mood and sleep. It's, it's multifaceted as far as its benefits. And same with cold plunging is from a nervous system regulation, inflammation support. These are great tools. Those are some that we, those are the most common, what would be termed biohacks that mm-hmm. people would do. Um, yeah. And it can go from there. Thoughts on red lights. 
Do you like them? Yeah, I do. I do. I don't see them to be as much of a needle mover for this as the sauna yeah. and the cold therapy. But yeah, for sure. Some people love them and they're 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 smaller, they're portable. Many of them are where they are if people are tight on space, they're a great way to get some light therapy. Yeah, I think that they can be a great tool within the toolbox. Also, for those people who are like listening to this about talk about saunas, the, saunas are very expensive in themselves and rather inaccessible for those of us who are on a budget. But there are those sauna blankets, which are actually quite cheap and are near infrared and infrared, which are like, they're like, I think they're a thousand bucks. But over time, you're going to use it so often and it takes up no space in, a, in an apartment or a house, wherever you're at. I think those things are really great. Absolutely. I mean, many of our patients, they can't, they don't, they don't have the budget to pay, pay for a sauna or mm -hmm. the space to do it or both. You're absolutely right. I'd say a, a massive percentage of our patients, if we are recommending, they're doing an Epsom salt bath and doing it that way. Right. Some of them don't even have a bathtub. They're doing the, the, the sauna blankets, which are a wonderful, more space efficient, cost effective way that roll up on, and you can stick it under your bed or you're under your couch. It's very, um, it's very helpful and they're portable. You can take them when you're traveling places as well. And I have one too, a higher dose sauna blanket. I love mine. Love it. Love it. So I kind of saw you on um, a viral video about a couple of months ago. Pretty amazing. <laughs> it was you and Gwen, you and Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, who I believe she's your client. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. Now, how much bone broth is she really drinking, Dr. Will? <laughs> uh, yeah, just... I mean, it, that I, people were also irritated about the IV. There was bone broth in the IV as well. So just bone broth IV. It's, let's have all our patients do that, right? <laughs> people are crazy, man. It's, it's, I, I, how far have we fallen as a culture when someone sipping on bone broth is radical, right? It's like, it says more about our world than anybody, anything else. Yeah. Where, oh my gosh, vegetables and broth and our ancestors <laughs> would roll over in their graves if yeah. they heard that that was newsworthy. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Very funny. The truth is a couple cups, a couple cups of bone broth, uh, and there's no caloric restriction. You know, I think that, you know, it's it's the nature of how the world works, right? It's it's clips, not context. It's mm -hmm. clickbait, not context. It was an hour-long conversation, and then people took clips out of those fives and made it into a story that it never was. Yeah. And I even hate using that term misinformation because it's been abused so much. Oh, I agree. But this truly was misinformation because it was a piece of the story and made into the entirety of it. It was really um, – it was – yeah. But, you know, it was – Interesting. Interesting to say the least. I've recently been, I agree with you, by the way. I, I, I was like, I think this is unfair to take this clip of her wellness, of, of which it was your question to her. You go like, what's your wellness? Uh, you know, what are you doing? And it's like, she just mentioned a few things that she liked to do. She liked to sauna. She liked to have coffee. She likes to have a big glass of water. She liked to have some bone broth. And people are like, that's all she does. That's all she eats. It's like, that's not what was said. However, absolutely, I mean, I absolutely I, I love, love it. I think it's so funny because Gwyneth, you know, in my opinion, and she's your client, so you won't be able to speak on this, but in my opinion, her accessibility is not why she is what she is. She's not, she's not the everyman of health and wellness. She's like in a, in a, she's in a, a metaverse of her own. 
It's like there's 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 what most people can afford, and then there's what Gwyneth Paltrow, who's been a Hollywood movie star for years, can do. And if she wants to have you know a, a if she wants to have bone broth on tap in her house, then she's allowed to have that. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, that would be fun, bone broth on tap. I mean, to figure that out. But uh, <laughs> yeah, right. You know what? To be honest with you, and ninety nine point nine percent of my patients are middle class nine to five people yep. that have to budget for these things that do budget for these things. I might profession wise, like the top people that I see are school teachers, nurses mm-hmm. and engineers and entrepreneurs. So those are like startup people in the startup world. So those are not like the elite 1%. Yep. And, and these things, they do they, can they do all the things that, that are out there in the wellness world? No. Do they need to do all the things that are in the wellness world? No. These are all tools within the toolbox. And we want to, no matter where you're at, let's let's make it as accessible, as affordable and approachable as we can. And the body's amazing and resilient. You're right. And she was talking about her journey. Like it wasn't like, okay, everybody has to do all of these things. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, it's, and things like soups and stews are actually very affordable. So yeah. uh, I, you know. We, the, mo- the most affordable thing at your butchery will be bones. And you take those bones and you put them in water and you leave them on the stove of very low heat overnight and you have a bone broth, collagen-rich, protein-rich, amino acid-rich to drink the next morning and it was cheap. And so, like, I think people look at bone broth as this, like, fancy luxury item and it's actually one of the cheapest things that you can buy in a store. Yeah. And if you go and buy it already made for you in uh, Air One, it's going to probably be, it's going to be, be more money, certainly. But yes. you can make it yourself, right, on a budget or reuse the bones. Like people, I have patients that will get a rotisserie chicken and then use the bones and make broth. Again, these are things that our ancestors would have done mm-hmm. uh, from an economical standpoint. Uh, so it's, these are, can be done really on a budget and we make that work for people that are on a budget. So it's, uh, it's always interesting to see and it, seeing human behavior for as long as I have with different clientele, different backgrounds and hearing every excuse under the sun. It is oftentimes for the average person out there, some of the most difficult patients we have are actually the patients with means. They are the ones that do have all the disposable income, but they have all the excuses under the sun of why they can't do it. They're too busy. They're, this is like, that's not for them where they, they'd rather spend the money on the vacations and the material things. And then I have the school teachers that are budgeting for it and they're doing it just fine because their why is bigger than their excuses. So I, it's really a misnomer. I think that you have to be wealthy to really lean into things that that are within wellness uh you just have to be smart about it sometimes and but look you could i live in a small town in western pennsylvania i don't live in los angeles and i can get everything that i recommend to patients at walmart at aldi at costco at target uh or at a farmer's market so i really uh I, I think it's unfair for people to judge the wellness world when there's just so m- there's a spectrum of, of things that people can explore. My sweet zaddies. This episode of the Zaddy Zone is brought to you by a product I use literally every morning first thing, AG1. It is the ultimate multivitamin, especially if you want to make health and wellness simple for yourself. So what's in it and why do I take it every morning? Well, one scoop of AG1, 
I'm absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, probiotics, adaptogens to help me start my day right. This special blend of ingredients supports gut health, the nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all the things. My favorite ingredients in particular in there, I love getting zinc first thing in the morning, and I love getting some ashwagandha because I know it's great for all of those stressful days, right? It's keto. It's paleo. It's vegan. Can you imagine meeting that as a person, a keto paleo vegan, they would be terrible. But this as a product is delicious. It supports clear thinking, better gut health. It's a delicious way to start every day. And you start the day with like a serving of greens. That is a win. Let's talk cost. $3 a day. Don't at me. Less than a coffee a day, you can have athletic greens. $3 a day. I started drinking it because Andrew Huberman drinks it. David Sinclair drinks it. Tim Ferriss drinks it. And I do what they do because, well, they, they know what they're talking about. You know what I mean? Athletic Greens is going to give you, listen to this, a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash zaddy. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash zaddy to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about being a dad. You said you, you mentioned you're a father of two. What age? Mm-hmm. 16 and 13. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. You're in the middle. I mean, I, yeah, you're in the teenage yeah, You have a baby. Well. Your baby's so sweet. Yeah, I started young. I was I was just, it was basically me and a bunch of Mormons that were young dads. And I hung out with Mormons for a few years because I had, and I'm not Mormon, but I, uh, you know, and now my kids are older and like babysitting all of the, uh, my friend's kids. That wow. Now they're having babies. But yeah, it's, I'm on the other side of fatherhood right now. Yeah. So t- just give me a little bit of insight though, a little, a few tips for keeping our kids healthy and, you know, I've been able to influence how they eat, how they live their lives so that they can be healthier. Um, I've got a toddler and a f- I've got a two and a half year old and a four month old. So the four, four months old isn't, he isn't really a behavior modeling yet, but my two and a half year old, you bet he is. So how can I help him be a healthy lad? Well, I would say as parents, we, we know our kids, right? And uh, we, every kid receives information differently and is so unique. So I, I would say always know your kid and speak in the language like that, that they receive and always make it age appropriate. When you're talking about wellness, like don't go over their heads or make it super serious, make it fun, never shame them. Like advice that I would give adults for other adults, I would definitely make it to kids too. Like you, just make it fun, get them engaged, get them in the kitchen. If you have access to a garden, even an urban garden, like get them involved, get them in the dirt, so to speak, and know where their food came from. And if you can't do that, get them involved in the kitchen and where the food came from. Get them involved in food prep and cooking. And I think that a little goes a long way. And no matter how old your kids are, we all could have done better. And I I look back at me, like at 16 and 13, this is what I do for a living. I could go back and be like, man, I wish I would have done this, this, and this differently. And I think it's important. Every parent says that. So to, to not shame ourselves as parents and say, look, we just, we do the best we can with what we have at that time. And you know, that, that cliche of the days are long, but the years are short. It's so true on this side of things. Time flies by and I get it when you're in the, the, swept up in the week of the busyness and you just are trying to just get through the day as a parent of toddlers and babies. Sometimes you don't have the energy to bring them in the kitchen because it's easier to just do it yourself. Mm -hmm. So don't beat yourself up. But ultimately, 
I would just be more intentional with having those special one-on-one times with them getting involved with where food came from. And uh, my son is 16 years old. He's very picky even to this day. And smoothies go a long way. And if they're not getting the, the vegetables in, smoothies, you can make them fine and get a lot of nutrient-dense foods within them. Yeah, I've got a two, my two-and-a-half-year-old – He's gotten picky. We 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 gave him two eggs for years, and now he's done. Like he's just like done with eggs. So it's like okay, we've got to be thinking now. And now I've given him smoothies. So I do a half a frozen banana, some berries, a little bit of milk, and then um, and so it's like an ice creamy, a little bit of almond butter, and some bone broth protein. And because I just figure I got to get the protein in somehow. Otherwise, I just eat. They're just eating sugar or like a fruit. And, you know, bread all day, they'll go for those things. But protein's really hard to get them to take. It is. Yeah, it is. And my my daughter, her like natural predisposition, she just has like an avoidance towards lots of meats, right? And mm. she left her own, she would eat, she would eat eggs. She likes cheeses, but she'd be in like vegetarian land. But now it's like, okay, you kind of have to meet them where they're at. If they're going to be weird picky eater for a time. Get them the best versions that you can. Yeah. And over time she, you know, she's now she's eating chickens and chicken and doing fine with it. Um, but I would say, especially for young girls, but really for any kid to just not make it a big thing, like just keep it simple, focus on all the things that love them back. And that's where I really went, paradigm shift that I would focus on is like, how can we use food to fuel our body? We want to feel good uh, and have set the culture in the home. And I think many parents, they are forgetting the fact that they're the ones that are stocking the fridge and they're the ones that are stocking the pantries and they need to lead by example. And if there is this sort of, you know, you're living two different ways, uh, they can see that. Uh, and ultimately live by example. I think that goes a long way. Yeah. Mate, I've loved talking to you. I, I think that this is a great podcast, just this discussion. I've been looking for somebody to talk to that I can go, when people come and ask me and talk to me about diet, about what they can eat, I've always wanted to have a podcast that I could go, that one, just go and listen to that one. And I think this is a really good one for that because you gave us those four pillars, five pillars of inflammation, really, that if we avoid those, those are a good start. And then you add in things that are great. So could you give me just a few of those? I'd like to finish here. Just a few things, a few tips for people of where they can start, things that they can start to eat to take the place of those inflammatory foods. Yeah, sure. So as if you have more digestive problems, focusing on soups and stews, the base could be uh, a bone broth. We've talked about that. You could try a bone broth IV bag if you wanted to. Just kidding. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> organic chicken broth, grass-fed beef broth. Uh, you could do plant-based bro- broth, like a galangal ginger broth, vegetable broth base, seaweed broth base. And then add your favorite vegetables, add your favorite protein in it uh, and make them hearty. They should. This isn't about caloric restriction. You could add like uh, complex carbs, like sweet potatoes, Japanese sweet potatoes, white potatoes in there. You can add carrots mm-hmm. and greens in there add as make them as hearty as you want to but they're soft and they're cooked and it's easier to digest i have some patients that do souping and have most of their meals fight via soup for a period of time therapeutically the more digestive problems you have the more you probably want to lean into that not everybody has to do that all the time yeah um and getting their calories from that way but 
really have vegetables in general, uh, any vegetables, uh, fill up your plate with, with as many as you can. I mean, we shoot for, depending on their size, like six to nine cups a day of vegetables. So it's very, quote unquote, plant-based as far as the amount of plant matter they're consuming. The yeah. more diverse your fiber intake, the more diverse your microbiome, and it's tons of health benefits from that. Uh, and fruits, same thing, a few cups of fruit a day. And uh, protein, making sure you're optimizing protein throughout the day. Not all protein is the same as far as its essential amino acid profile or the types of amino acids that are within the food. So sometimes we have to get granular, especially if someone's more plant-based and being mindful of combining and getting enough of these essential amino acids that you have to get through food. But most people that are omnivore don't really have to overthink it. They can keep it simple and just getting adequate amounts of uh, complete proteins throughout the day. And that could be grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish. If you don't have access to grass-fed, wild-caught, the benefits outweigh any drawbacks. I want people to just get whole foods into their diet. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, you don't have to go shopping at the high-end grocery store. Go and check out Aldi, check out Costco, check out Walmart. They have a lot of better they have a lot of good options for they people do. Yeah. and you just have to know where to shop sometimes. Uh, and there's a lot of online, like thrive market has a lot of lower cost things. Butcher box has a lot of great lower cost meats. If you're looking to save some money um, and uh, healthy fats, like some of the meats would be healthy fats, but avocados, olives, or it would be other uh, types of healthy fats, plant fats that would be appropriate there. So this, that's if the average human did more of those foods can you imagine what the improvement in public health be, would be and also just quality of life and people's behavior on social media would just improve dramatically because it would be less miserable people. I love that, mate. Could you please tell us how we can keep in contact with you or please tell us about your books as well? Thank you, my friend. My newest book is called Gut Feelings. We're talking about gut and feelings, the physiological and the psychological and the research of unresolved trauma and chronic stress and its impact on our physical health. But then conversely, how underlying gut problems, things that I see clinically with patients, how that impacts our mood. So it's written for people that are dealing with brain health issues or autoimmune problems or both and the research around these these topics so it's called gut feelings it's out now uh and my podcast is called the art of being well i if i would love to have you on so it's standing invitation let me know oh, that'd be great um and yeah everything's at drwillcole.com d-r-w-i-l-l-c-o-l-e.com um that's where they can go you're on instagram too did you mention that yeah i didn't sorry yeah at dr will cole on instagram I'm on TikTok, but I don't know what the heck I'm doing. So I am at Dr. Bill on TikTok. I'm too old for that crap. Dude, just get, yeah. If you have an assistant, just get them to post on there for you. Just get them to take the Instagram video and put it over on TikTok. That's all you yeah. have to do. Trying to keep it fret. Yeah, you're right. That's good advice. But I love your videos, man. They're hysterical. I share them too with my wife. I share them with the clinic. You are belo beloved over here in the functional medicine land. I love that, mate. Yeah, it's good. I like to keep it light. Mate, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us. You're a wealth of knowledge. So thank you very much, Dr. Will Cole. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Zaddy Zone, I encourage you to subscribe and rate our podcast five stars. And if you feel so generous, please write a review, say how much you loved it. Um, I only want to provide value to you and I hope you're feeling some value by listening to it. We're not asking for any money. 
just a nice old rate review. Subscribe. XOXO. Zaddy.